learning and cultural awareness for mass migration enhances the benefits. So it can make it so much better in terms of your experience of your life, your ability to be creative and be creative with other people, and what you're learning about other people will all improve if you learn these skills to adapt to how the world is changing. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the SkillsCast from the University of Warwick. This is the show about how to learn and develop your skills while at university and how to use them to set you up for a fantastic start to life once you graduate. In each episode, you'll get to hear from a range of different people from across Warwick's campus about why skills are important, how they developed theirs and how you can too. I'm your host, Dave Musson, and in this episode, you'll get to hear from some of my immediate colleagues in the skills team about something we've not yet covered here, what it takes to actually learn a skill. This time around, two of my fellow skills developers got together to talk skills. Stephen Burke asked the questions and Tom Greenaway offered his insights and expertise. There's lots to cover here, including defining skills, complicated gymnastics moves, and Rubik's cubes. If you enjoyed this interview, please share it with a friend and consider following the show so you don't miss any future episodes. You can find the SkillsCast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you're listening. And you can find transcripts of all our episodes at warwick.ac.uk slash skillscast. And there's a link to that in the episode description. Oh, and if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to answer the question we've added to this episode on the mobile app. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, enough introduction. Here's Tom. My name's Tom Greenaway. I'm a skills developer at Warwick. My background is in intercultural communication research. So I've got a PhD in how people develop skills working in multicultural teams. Before I did my maths and PhD, I lived abroad in Japan and in Martinique. And that gave me a lot of interest in how people communicate across cultures. And that kind of, that, that was what fed into my interest in intercultural communication and teamwork skills. I then, after my PhD, I worked at the University of Sheffield, which was on a three-year-long project specifically on developing teamwork skills, trying to measure people learning teamwork skills. And then after that, I came to Warwick, and now I'm more focused on the instruction of helping people develop skills. So I'm not doing so much research now, although I've done enough for a while, I think. Understand how that feels. Okay, so you got a fair bit of background on working with skills. So how would you define what a skill is? I think the basic definition is that a skill is the ability to do something. We often talk about knowledge and skills. And the way I understand that is knowledge is the information you put in your head and the skill is how you use that knowledge. So to think about it like critical thinking, we often say is a skill and we use the word thinking. But actually what we test when we're doing critical thinking is we test the ability to communicate that, crit that critical thinking. Um, you can't have one without the other in terms of knowledge and skills. All skills require a bit of knowledge and all knowledge requires some skill to display it. Even when we're very young, for example, tying shoelaces, when we're tying shoelaces, we are using the knowledge of how the knots work and the skills of how to use our fingers. Okay, we work with some different sort of characterizations of types of skills and there's probably quite a lot of overlap between them but I think they mean different things. What do you think we mean when we talk about transferable skills, employability skills and core skills? Part of me thinks that these are just labels which mean roughly the same thing. So originally the terms that we used or that kind of had a lot of currency were soft skills and hard skills. And that actually came from the US Army. 
So your hard skills were things like being able to shoot a gun or drive a tank. And your soft skills were things like being able to communicate orders or being able to think strategically. Um, but for some reason, people don't like the term soft skills because they think it demeans them or it sounds less important. So they use transferable skills. Employability skills is pretty straightforward. It's the type of skills you need for a job. Transferable skills, I think when we say transferable skills, what we mean is it's a skill that can be used in lots of different contexts. And it's quite important in skill development, and I touch on this when I teach people about skills, that there are some skills that are very context-specific. So, for example, learning how to shoot a gun, which is a hard skill, I guess, you really just shoot a gun. You don't learn much more than that, like aiming for the target. But it's not easily transferable to other situations apart from when you have a gun in your hand. Whereas transferable skills like teamwork, you will be working in lots of different teams and you'll work in, on lots of different tasks. And so you have to transfer it to different areas. Or like the one, the other one from the army, strategic thinking, you can apply that not just to warfare, but also to politics, to relationships, to commercial transactions, negotiating. Like you can apply that to lots of different situations. So that's why we say transferable skills. The final one, core skills, is what we call them at Warwick. The Warwick core skills, which are the core skills that all students are supposed to have some level of when they graduate. And I don't think there's much difference between those and transferable skills or employability skills, but we have different labels because mm, I don't know exactly why. I suppose it could have something to do with the context in which they're discussed and sometimes applied. So when we talk about the core skills, we're talking about foundational skills on which you can build a lot of other skills and knowledge. Um, when we're talking about transferable skills, I think we're talking about skills that you can learn and apply in one context, but then you can reapply in another context that could be totally different, but in which the skill is still relevant. Employability skills, as you said, are about skills you need for a job or to get a job. Yeah, and I'll just say that with employability skills, a lot of people think employability skills are transferable skills, like their teamwork skills. But actually, a lot of the skills that you learn that are specific to your degree or to your discipline are employability skills. So, for example, being able to test a culture in a lab or grow a culture in a lab, which I'm sure is more frequent than testing one, is an employability skill if you want to work in a lab. Similarly, being able to write a poem is an employability skill if you want to be a poet. There's not much work in poetry, but I take your point. Well, there's not much of a market for it, but it's still, if that's the job you want, that's the employability skill. Whereas I think some people, when they say employability skills, they just think teamwork, communication, professionalism, organizational awareness, ones that can be used in any job. Whereas for me, it's if it's the job that you're, you want or you're interested in, and that skill is relevant, then it's an employability skill. How did you become so interested in how people recognize and develop their skills? So I've always been interested in difficult problems and learning skills and recognizing skills is quite difficult. Like there, were, there was a study, well, the Office for Students did a study a few years ago where they measured, they were trying to measure something called learning gain and they measured learning gain in terms of knowledge in terms of skills, although they called it cognitive gain and non-cognitive gain and non-cognitive gain meant the skills so another term for skills and they found that there was no way to measure non-cognitive gain as in 
because skills are so variable and so different, how can you, at a kind of macro scale, measure skill development? It's really difficult. And so the problem is there kind of waiting to be solved. And I'm interested in it, partly because it's very difficult, partly because I feel that a lot of, not a lot, but there's a lot of literature out there on skill development, which isn't actually that helpful. That's often developing something else, or it's more about your personality or more about your dispositions, rather than doing the thing itself, doing something with the knowledge. So that's, that's kind of where I got quite interested in it. In terms of the history of it, obviously I started off looking into cultural skills. And that was because I felt there was something there, as in there's something that will help you go from being poor at communicating with people from different cultures to being good at it. And then it, that kind of expanded into teamwork skills where you're measuring kind of, where I was measuring like how often people were using different types of teamwork behaviors in a meeting and seeing if that had an impact on teamwork outcomes. And it's really difficult, like it's very difficult to find, one, it's difficult to find evidence of improvement. Another is that it's difficult to decide what improvement is, and then try to justify that. Because a lot of the research on skills development, particularly on these transferable skills, hasn't gone very far. Like it's quite limited, so it's still an area where there's a lot to be, lot to read and also a lot to learn. There's more to come shortly after this. Have you started thinking about your career options yet? Whether you're just getting started and have no ideas or have a clear idea of what you'd like to do after you graduate, the careers team is here to support you in creating the career that is right for you. What can the careers team help you with? Well, plenty. From improving your CV and writing cover letters through to preparing for interviews and job application tests, they are here to help you achieve your vision of career success. As well as supporting you throughout your time at Warwick, the careers team can also help you after you graduate. They offer in-person and remote services that are flexible to your needs and other commitments. To get started, visit warwick.ac.uk slash careers. That's warwick.ac.uk slash careers. So when does development start then? In terms of skills and, and maybe more generally, when does development start and how does it change throughout our I mean, development starts as soon as you're, you know, a very small child learning to do stuff. So what's the first skill do you think a small child? I mean, I haven't intensively observed small children, but things like crawling, walking, making noises that indicate whether you want to be fed or not. You know, these are all skills. It's that whole information is in your head and then you're doing something with that information. So learning how to crawl is doing something with that information. In terms of kind of how it changes throughout our lives, Generally, we kind of, we assume that we learn faster when we're younger. And that's actually not true. It depends on what you're learning and it depends on other circumstances. So for example, if I've already learned something, let's say if I've learned how to give presentations, I've got good presentation, then I'm told you need to present in a new way to a different audience. I can actually learn that quite quickly, that new facet of that skill, compared to if I was a 10 year old because I would be learning presentation skills from the start, from scratch. So actually, things do take uh, longer if you're young. Another thing which kind of speeds up learning when you're a bit older is abstraction. So we're better thinking abstractly as we get older. And that's true in areas like language, it's true in areas 
a lot of the things you learn at university are abstract concepts and you're applying them and, and using them different ways. But there are two things that do help when you're a bit young. And one is time. You have more time to learn when you're younger. We spend, in most countries, we spend at least 16 years learning before we do any kind of form of paid work. Another thing is distractions. When you're older, you have distractions like children, for example, like work, like, you know, things such as mortgages and all these kind of adult problems that we talk about, as well as modern technology, phones and so on. These all make it more difficult to learn. So it can change that way as well. I found that when I first got a smartphone, I didn't really do much except use my smartphone. I had to work quite hard to learn stuff. So I, I enjoy learning languages. I had to focus quite hard on learning languages and not looking at my phone. And I think a lot of us kind of in the modern age struggle with that type of distraction. Another thing is that cognitive, like we do decline as we get older, but the more you focus on learning, the healthier your brain will stay. So your brain will decline less quickly as long as you continue trying to learn new things. Um, and it doesn't take longer. It's just that we have less time normally. That's what a lot of the research shows. Definitions of transferable skills and their relative importance both seem to be highly subjective. Um, everyone has a different opinion and they sometimes work really hard to justify it. Why do you think this is and how can we come to understand it? Bear with me, but I think definitions are both important and not important. So it's important to know what we're talking about. As in, when we say teamwork, it's important to have a rough definition of what teamwork is. I would say a broad definition of what teamwork is because it can mean so many things. But one, you don't need to get hung up on the definitions. I don't think um, changing a few words in the definition of teamwork will really change what teamwork means. I think some people, particularly organizations, when they're trying to sell you stuff, they will provide you with a definition of something as if that's a new concept or a new skill, when actually it's something that people have been doing already it just hasn't been sold. You can define teamwork with a tautology, right? Teamwork is working in a team. Yeah, exactly. Or you exactly. can work to make it more complicated. Yeah, you can work to make it more complicated. And I think people often get hung up on whether or not terms are the same or whether they should be differentiated. So a classic one is what's the difference between teamwork or group? I was actually asked in a section of my PhD to define what the difference between them was. And when I went and did my reading... I then found that a lot of people use them when they're talking about the same thing. Is working in a team that different to working in a group? Not that different, and particularly in terms of the skills that are required to work in a team. Oh, one other thing to add is I don't think when we talk about definitions of skills, I don't think that it's unique to skills that the definitions are subjective. As in a lot of terms that we have, particularly abstract terms like democracy or freedom, how much easier is that to define than something like teamwork? If you're using a term that you imply in different situations, by necessity, it's going to have some subjectivity in some areas where it's specific to certain contexts. And I don't think that makes it a bad thing. I don't think it makes it more difficult to learn. I just think it's the nature of learning a transferable skill. Yeah, I think you're right there. Contextually, experientially, and historically dependent terms like this. Yeah. So working in a team would mean something very different 50 years ago on the other side of the country at a different environment, working environment to our working environment. 
just as democracy meant something very different to the demos in ancient Rome as to what it means now in a modern society. Yeah, I agree. I don't even think you have to go back in time. As in, I think working in a team, say if you're working in a team and one team you're working with are all in the same room with you and you're working on a very technical project. Another team is that everyone is remotely based. They're all over the world. And it's more about a creativity project. And then a final one is a sports team that you're a member of. All teamwork, all completely different contexts, completely different ways of working in a team. Therefore, the definition of the team itself and therefore teamwork has to, has to change. What I would argue is that there are aspects of working in a team that are common across all of these. And that's why it's a transferable skill. But I wouldn't get tied down in trying to define every kind of element of what that teamwork was. So if you understand it in context, then you can understand how you're applying it. And you can... If you're understanding it in context, you're along the way of learning what the, learning the skill itself. So how are we helping Warwick students to navigate this skills landscape for their employment? So one insight that stuck with me during my PhD was that employers themselves don't know what a skill is until they see it. So it may feel baffling, but a lot of the time employers know a skill when they see it. They don't have the set definitions themselves. So when we're thinking about the what learning a skill is, really what we're saying is the evidence of learning the skill. So what we do at Warwick is we encourage students to reflect on learning those skills so they've got evidence of learning and evidence of using the skill. And evidence of improving. And evidence of improving, yeah, evidence of improving as well. And some of that is this kind of story that we tell about learning a skill. But also, your qualification is also a certification that you are learning skills. So by the end of your degree, you should have learned a bunch of skills that come with learning that degree. That qualification is proof to some extent that you've learned. Um, another thing is that there's a long list of skills. There's an endless list of skills, even with intercultural communication. So there was a paper published a few years ago which listed all of the skills that were related to intercultural competence and the list went on for six pages listing all the possible skills that could just be for intercultural competence so don't get hung up on that instead look at the types of jobs you want the industries you want to work in look at the skills that they require and focus on those also focus on the skills that you're interested in because the stuff you're interested in is the stuff that you tend to learn but don't worry about if you'll learn every skill. Just focus on the ones you need for the Can you pick out some prerequisites for ideal skills development? Or if it's trial and error throughout our lives, how do we incrementally refine how we improve our skills? This is a difficult question. I kind of struggle with it. So there is definitely a an element of trial and error in terms of how we learn skills. This is one thing going back to learning skills and how it changes throughout our lives. Children do not feel shame about when they make mistakes. If they make a mistake, they just try again without a voice inside their head telling them that it's because they're stupid or because they can't do it or because they shouldn't be allowed to do it. Whereas as adults, our voice is a lot stronger. So the trial and error gets a bit harder. I don't know if everyone does learn new skills throughout their lives. I think there are some people who reach a level of kind of they're happy with their jobs and they're happy with their home life and they're not really interested in developing more. I would say for your cognitive health, for your brain health, you should try and learn things throughout your life, learn new things. In terms of prerequisites, they do make things easier. So like the presentation example I gave earlier, 
knowing how to give a presentation means that you can then more easily learn how to give a presentation in a specific context. Also, if you've got experience in something adjacent to the skill, so like the shooting example, so shooting a gun is a hard skill, but adjacent to that might be shooting an arrow. So you know how to aim something at a target and pull a trigger. It might make it, make it so that shoot, learning to shoot arrows is for easier for you. The maths is, the maths is similar. The maths is similar. Yeah, so the trajectory still needs to be taken into account. It's just going to be very different with the arrows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I prefer arrows because they're quieter. I'm not a big fan of loud noises. <laughs> I would start off with the arrows, but most armies don't do archery. They've, they've moved away. <laughs> they've yeah. moved away. Yeah, I think, and particularly for complicated skills, prerequisites are important. So I was reading an article the other day about Simone Biles, who's an American gymnast, and she can do this skill called the triple-double, which is a double backflip and a triple twist. So in the air, she's flipping twice horizontally, no, vertically, and spinning three times horizontally. Really complicated, and she's the only person in the world who can do it. It's complicated enough for you to describe, never mind. Yeah, I can't even describe if I see it, I can't even know that she's done it because there's so many twists. But I'm assured it's called a triple-double. In order to learn to do that, she didn't just wake up one day and go from zero to a triple-double. She was doing twists. She was doing backflips. She was doing backflips with one twist. Backflips with two twists. She was doing two backflips with one twist. Internalizing all of these different elements of the skill set, how to land properly and all of that, until eventually, both with the physical strength of it and with the mental dynamics of controlling your body in midair through those different twists and turns she achieved a triple double there are loads of prerequisites there to get to that point of excellence also a process of trial and error however built into it too yeah lots of feedback lots of what you might call reflection in action in order to apply what you learn when things don't go right in order that you can yeah so that's the other thing the other part of learning a skill the prerequisite that's very important is the feedback and when you're learning a skill it's really important to have feedback i kind of think of it as a measure of how well you're doing so in a simple simple terms imagine drawing a line that's 10 centimeters and then draw another line that's 10 centimeters without using a ruler just keep drawing 10 centimeter lines and you'll quickly realize that you're not getting any better at drawing a 10 centimeter line because you don't have a ruler you know you don't know how long 10 centimeters is so you can never get better no matter how many times you draw lines that you think are 10 centimeters long so the feedback loop is really important in terms of being able to measure it and this is when we talk about transferable skills this is why it's so difficult because how do you measure say if you're working in four different teams how do you measure being successful at teamwork in those four different teams particularly if like it doesn't necessarily mean that you get a good grade that you're good at working in a team your team may win a football match, but you could be on the wing and not do much at all, and yet your team could still win. So it's really difficult to measure. So a prerequisite for learning a skill well is to either have a measurement of what kind of improvement is, or to be able to find ways of doing it. When there isn't a way of doing it that's obvious, then reflective practice comes in, because then you're guiding your your thoughts, kind of your internal monologue into directing it towards what you've learned, directing towards how you could apply it to another circumstance. I think a final thing which we don't really talk about is it's very useful to have a teacher 
So learning skills by yourself is very difficult. If you've got someone to help you learn a skill, you'll make far more progress because they will know what good looks like. Even if they don't have a, a 30 centimeter ruler or a 10 centimeter ruler, they will still know what good looks like. If you think about in a lot of areas like martial arts, you've got someone who's got a black belt. How they know what is good in a martial art is just through years of experience of doing it. There isn't necessarily a guidebook saying, this is good, this is bad. It's just through learned experience. And I think that's something which, if you can find a teacher for a skill or a guide, you will find it a lot easier. What's the latest totally new skill you think you've developed? And how did you start to explore it? How has it got as far as you've got with it? I brought it with me because I know it works very well on podcasts, the visual. I bought a Rubik's Cube. Yep, for our audience, Tom is now holding a Rubik's Cube, a rather luminous looking one, not a traditional design at all. No, I don't know what this design is called. Um, but I learned how to solve a Rubik's Cube last summer. And the reason for that is, so my mum's the type of person who, if she can't think of a stocking filler for Christmas, she just goes to a toy shop and buys a bunch of puzzles and toys for me. And last year I was moving house and I was packing everything in. And at the bottom of one of the drawers, I found two Rubik's Cubes and realized I'd never learned how to solve them. And they were just there. And your mum had even bought you twice by this point. She bought me, yeah, she'd forgotten the first time. So she bought me a second time, yeah. And um, it was at that point when you're moving house, you're deciding, do I keep stuff or do I donate it? And so I had these two Rubik's Cubes and I was at this, I thought, well, if I keep them, then I'm going to have to learn how to solve them. Because there's no point in having a Rubik's Cube in your possession if you're not learning how to solve. At the time, I was living in, in another house and I took them away with me and I started watching YouTube videos on how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And the first video was really bad and I really struggled to learn it. The way you solve Rubik's Cubes is through algorithms. So you learn a series of moves and that helps you solve every single cube. So the algorithms are always the same and you just kind of go through the pattern and you eventually solve so I was watching these videos and actually the first thing I learned about the Rubik's Cube was it wasn't as complicated as I thought it was in that it's got six sides. My basic math, it's got, it's a cube. It's a cube with six sides. And you think that with six sides and nine colors on each side that there's that many pieces. So six times nine, which is 64. But actually there aren't as many as that. Because the pieces are connected to each other, you've got a fewer number of pieces because you've got basically corner pieces. So you've got eight corner pieces. You've got the center pieces. So you've got six center pieces. Then you've got kind of edge pieces. So I don't know how many you've got of those, but you don't have as many as 64. The, the importance is that the first lesson you learned was less complex. If you learn it first, it yes, less complex, but also the colors around on different sides are connected. So there's this whole thing of when, when I didn't know how to solve a Rubik's Cube, I just tried to solve one side and then another side and then another side. And it doesn't work that way because the pieces are connected, you solve it in layers. So you do the bottom layer, then the second layer, then the third layer, and then the top. And once I'd learned that, then the concepts were really important. And then I just followed the video watching how to do the algorithms. And I started off by kind of watching a bit of the video, playing around on the cube, pausing the video to check I'd done it and then starting again, watching something, pausing it, trying it. And then the first time it took me about an hour to work. It was like a 15 minute video 
but it took me an hour to get from starting to solving the cube. And I had to do that a few times where it got a little bit shorter each time, so like 50 minutes, 45 minutes, half an hour. And then eventually I was solving the cube in time with the video, so it took me about 15 minutes. Then I started trying to do it without watching the video. And what happened was quite a few times I got stuck and then I had to watch the video again. And then eventually I was able to solve it by myself and then I got faster and faster and faster. And I thought, oh, I've done it. I've sold a Rubik's Cube. Then, uh, you know how YouTube has those recommended videos? So speed cubing sent me onto the YouTube algorithms, not the Rubik's Cube algorithms, the YouTube algorithms sent me on speed cubing. So the algorithms I learned for solving a Rubik's Cube are one of hundreds. There's loads of different ways of solving a Rubik's Cube. And people race. They race each other to solve the Rubik's Cube the fastest. And they race against the clock, mostly against the clock, actually. So I can solve a Rubik's Cube in about a minute and a half to two minutes. The fastest time solving a Rubik's Cube is about three seconds. How, how is that physically, materially possible? So that's why this cube feels a bit weird, because it's called a speed cube. Although I'm not, I'm not teaching myself speed cubing. This just happens to be Christmas present. Hap uh, happens to be like a good cube rather than the old, very kind of rough, plasticky, well, well, roughly made. So that's your accidental speed cube. That's my accidental speed cube. Yes. Yeah, and they basically, it's, it's not just about learning the algorithms, it's about learning these finger triggers to help you flip and move stuff in very quick, very quick time. And also the way they solve it is very different to how I solve it, because I solve it layer by layer. Whereas if they find shortcuts, so maybe that they can solve the top layer and the bottom layer and then do the middle. And if that's faster for the way the, the cube is scrambled at that time, then they solve it. Yeah, but what I also learned is when I saw the speed cubing videos, I thought, oh, I've learned how to solve a Rubik's cube. And then suddenly kind of this vast space of learning opened up where whereas I thought I'd done it actually, it was just the tip of the iceberg. And if I wanted to, although I didn't because I have other things to do, if I wanted to, I could try and master all these other ways of solving a Rubik's cube, all these hundreds and thousands of combinations to get better and to get faster. The ever-increasing complexity of Simone Biles' routine. Yes, exactly. So it's, for me, like an achievement would be able to do a backflip. You know, that would, that would be the achievement and I would stop there. But for the gymnast, yeah, there's not only is there the triple-double Simone Biles thing, there's different types of backflips. You know, you can do one in pike, you can do one tucked, you can do one with your legs splayed or with your legs open, you know. There's all sorts, and all I'm do, all I would want to do is learn how to get it so that my legs flip around and in one complete circle without dying. Stick around for more about learning skills right after this. It's never too early or too late to start thinking about what you might do after graduation and what skills you need to do it. The Warwick Award can help you do just that. Pulling from your academic modules, as well as anything else you get involved with, such as volunteering, sports teams, societies, internships, placements, caring responsibilities, part-time work, and plenty more, the Warwick Award recognises and showcases the skills you're building through those activities. It also highlights training and development opportunities, so you can craft a full range of skills to help set you up for a fantastic start to life after graduation. The award is free for all undergraduates and taught postgraduates, 
it can be personalized to allow you to shape your own employability skills development, and it is ready for you whenever you're ready for it. Registration is quick and easy, so why not join more than 12,000 students by signing up now and taking your first steps towards earning the Warwick Award? Find out more at warwick.ac.uk slash Warwick Award. Right, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to take one of their core skills to the next level? Pick one as an example, if you like. The first thing I would say is pick a skill which you, which feels achievable and has a clear outcome. So I would be looking at more specific skills. So if you think about the work core skills, I would be looking at digital literacy, sustainability, organizational awareness, ones where there's a very clear kind of outcome. The thing you need to think about first is where are you with that skill? So if we take organizational awareness, are you someone who doesn't even know what a CEO is? Or are you someone who is intimately familiar with the steel market in China and India? And, you know, you're kind of looking at very specific things in that area. Most of us are kind of somewhere in the middle. You then need to pick what you can learn or what you can develop and have a specific goal in mind. And I would even say the goal's not enough. I would say it has to be a task that you can do with that knowledge. So when we say learning what a CEO is, can you then explain it to someone else in a conversation? That would be the task that demonstrates that you've learned that bit of knowledge. Or like with the steel industry, learning that specific point about, I don't know, India steel industry, Tata steel, you know, Learning about that, can you use that somewhere? That's where the demonstration of the skill is. I think for skills that are a bit more nebulous, like teamwork, those can be improved, but it's a more complicated thing because for teamwork, as we said, it's a transferable skill. So you need to find not just one team to work in, but multiple teams. So you need to look for multiple opportunities to work in a team in different contexts, and you need to think about specific things about your teamwork skills that you want to improve. Is it, for example, managing a meeting? Then your task is to manage a meeting and to reflect on what you've learned from that. It could be persuading someone else in a team to do something that they don't want to do. You know, pick up a specific aspect of it and focus on it. When it comes to transferable skills and the need to reflect, it's because our brains don't actively transfer from one context to another. We can't do that. We need to think about it. We need to reflect. So the idea of, oh, this thing worked well when I was working in a sports team. Let's try it in, you know, a workplace team. That doesn't just happen. You have to think about it. You have to consider it. You have to work on it. And that's why the reflection of it is so important. What are your top three tips for improving skills and consolidating what you've learned? So I think we've already gone over a few of these. Measurement is really important. You can't learn a skill without knowing what good looks like, learning how to improve. Um, the another thing which we haven't really talked about but is really important is regular and purposeful practice. And this does link back to the measurement again. So, for example, with the languages, I'm currently learning Mandarin. And there's an app called Duolingo, which I'm sure people have heard of. And I've been using that, and I know that that app does not test me enough. So I have regular practice, you know, I have a streak of 400 and something days. So I've been doing this app for over a year. But I know that it's not pushing me, it's just really consolidating. And it's very easy stuff. 
So I also have a Mandarin teacher who really tests me. Like I have to speak for half an hour in Mandarin with her and that's really hard. But I know that that practice is far more purposeful. I do both though, because I like Duolingo and I like the consolidation, but I also know I have to be tested. So it has to happen regularly and it has to be purposeful. The final thing is if it's a transferable skill, you do need reflection. There are arguments for reflection in, on technical skills as well. So for example, learning Mandarin, sometimes it does help if I reflect on what I've learned and how I can apply it in other situations. Often because it's learning a language and I don't know the answers, that reflection is more of a conversation with someone about, you know, if I say this in this situation, would it work? And they'll tell me, oh, it'd feel weird or that would sound like you're chatting someone up or they're all the mistakes you can make when learning a language. And then the final thing, I know I've said three things, but there's a fourth thing, is it's really useful to have a teacher. It's really useful to have someone helping you learn the skill. Teachers can be expensive, but they they really do help with learning a skill and giving you some accountability in terms of what looks good in that, what in terms of what good looks like. How do you see the future of transferable skills development for careers and employment? There are three main issues I think that are going to affect all of us in the future. So one is climate change, the other is AI, and the third one is the mass movement of people. We've already seen these are already happening. Mass movement to people. Lots of societies are more multicultural than they were before. Lots of people living in cities. It's also the reason, one of the reasons why we had a pandemic was people moving around everywhere and spreading the illness. It's also strongly imbricated in the first one as well. The, the change or collapse of the climate system will entail a greater movement. Of- yes, and forced migrations based off the world heating up places to become deserts and so on. Um, I'll talk about AI first. To be honest, I don't think AI will change things that much. Basically, I think the role of AI is still to be determined. One thing that's clear is that AI cannot do the learning for you. So in the same way that a calculator won't make you better at maths, it might help you do things faster, but you still have to learn what adding and subtracting and dividing is. And I think the problem with AI is that the AI doesn't know if it's wrong. So if you're using AI to, you know, to help you with your writing or to help you with maths or with programming or whatever, is that unless you know what's right and wrong, the AI could lead you in any direction. And so it's not going to replace the hard work you have to do in learning the skill, learning the fundamentals of it. There was an interesting episode of South Park where they were using AI to help send messages to their girlfriends and suddenly their relationships with their girlfriends became a lot better but it all fell down because the AI isn't a replacement for the actual talking in the relationship so once you no longer have the AI AI to rely on you know that really shows up your ability using the AI instead of what they wanted to say themselves didn't make them better at saying the right thing at the right time yeah um for climate change There's definitely a strong moral argument that the skills you learn should be considered for the impact on the environment. Um, I think there's a naivety in skills learning, particularly in higher education, that people will learn these skills and then use them to do good things. But the thing is that learning to become a better communicator, yes, it could mean that you're better at communicating to patients if you're a doctor or 
you know, if you're working in local government to the constituents there. But it could also mean that you're better at deceiving people. Or it could mean, like, you know, Donald Trump is a very good communicator. I don't like him, but he's a very good communicator. He's very good at convincing people to do things and believe things that aren't true. And so just having good communication skills doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, do things that help the world. And so a, lo a lot of the communication around climate change has been to its detriment in terms of trying to fight it because it's muddied the waters. It's used people's understanding or lack of understanding of certain areas to their advantage in order to make people buy and consume more, which has damaged the climate. More concretely, if you're doing something like learning how to be an engineer or learning how to do HR and you work for a fossil fuel company or an energy company, you know, is that the is it the best use of your skills to extract those fuels, you know, or to help people extract those fuels? That's kind of where we think, where I think the concern is with skills, not the learning of the skills themselves, but more how they're used towards the current challenges we face. It's it's an issue of how you apply things like your own self awareness and how you apply your critical exactly. thinking skills yeah. within the context um, of an industry that causes damage to the climate or. And then the final thing is the mass movement of people. So this links to kind of my specialism in intercultural awareness. The thing that we kind of don't really talk about with intercultural awareness is that historically intercultural interactions, intercultural encounters have gone wrong. So there's a long history of intercultural encounters resulting in slavery, exploitation, death, yeah, terrible things. And with the mass movement of people, if we're not learning how to get along, how to communicate well with people from different cultures, then we're at risk of these things happening again. I think because of its historical context, it is really important to develop your intercultural skills and because of what's happening currently. Because otherwise, it's the whole thing. If you, if you don't learn history, you'll repeat it. If you don't learn how to work with people from different cultures, how to interact with them, how to understand each other, then you are a risk of the previous very disastrous, I would say, intercultural encounters repeating themselves. You're not so sure. It's a question of choice of words, I think. The idea that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it isn't what I feel um, to be quite an accurate portrayal of the reality. If you don't learn from history, you won't repeat the same mistakes but you will replicate aspects of those mistakes in very different situations. Yeah, I think I think it's that, yeah, the replication of aspects of it. Because our brains haven't changed how they've worked over the past, you know, several thousand years, we're still skeptical of outsiders, like that is part of how we've kind of evolved. But also in a conscious way, there are many mechanisms, processes, systems and structures, and also people with specific agendas who will play on that and who will... And I don't want to say that it's all been awful either. Like a lot of intercultural interaction is one of the reasons why we've got such advanced technology over the past hundred years. It's also why we have different cuisines and how some of those cuisines, like fusion cuisines, have brought kind of some amazing changes and some like you wouldn't have a hamburger without intercultural interaction. Like the American hamburger wouldn't have happened without cultural exchange. So there are all these benefits to it. And I think 
Probably to end on a positive note, the learning and cultural awareness for mass migration enhances the benefits. So it can make it so much better in terms of your experience of your life, your ability to be creative and be creative with other people, and what you're learning about other people will all improve if you learn these skills to adapt to how the world is changing. You've been listening to The Skillscast, a podcast about skills development from the University of Warwick. If you enjoyed this interview, please share it with a friend and consider following the show so you don't miss any future episodes. You can find The Skillscast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you listen. And you can find transcripts of all our episodes at warwick.ac.uk slash skillscast. And there's a link to that page in the episode description. Oh, and if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to answer the question we've added to this episode on the mobile app. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks to Tom Greenaway for plenty of wisdom and advice on learning skills, and also to Stephen Burke for asking the questions. We'll be back with this duo later in the season when the roles will be reversed. This episode was hosted, mixed and edited by me, Dave Musson. I also designed our artwork, while our music is from Adobe Stock Music. And we'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. The Skillscast is brought to you by the team behind the Warwick Award, the University of Warwick's Employability Skills Award and Development Scheme. Find out more at warwick.ac.uk slash warwickaward. Award.